are going to begin this new series. I have no idea when it will end. <laughs> I like to, uh, typically I like to make a schedule and I like to plot it out and I like to you kind of try and stick to that schedule, but I don't dare with the book of Romans. And so we're going to start today. That's all I know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see when it ends, when the Lord says, I suppose. So you're in uh, Romans chapter one. And I want to uh, just read a couple of passages that we're going to be focusing on today, and then uh, we are going to pray together. By the way, before uh, I read those passages, I would encourage you throughout the coming series to read Romans regularly. It takes about an hour, maybe a little bit less to read it, and uh, that's not a giant chunk of reading. You know, if you did that once a week. If you did that twice a week, it would change your thinking. It, would, uh, it has changed my thinking. And so I would encourage you to do that. We begin in Romans chapter 1. I want to read, starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then down in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And if you'll turn to chapter 3. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus, let's pray. Father, we are a blessed people. Blessed to have your word in front of us. Blessed to have the book of Romans in front of us. And to have the opportunity to study it. We are blessed that we have Jesus. We have this gospel that Romans testifies to, that we can be made right with you in Christ. Father, we don't approach this book lightly. We don't approach this subject lightly. We don't approach Christ lightly. We feel the heaviness the intensity, the weight, the seriousness, the gravity of these subjects. 
And so we ask that you would minister to us today from your word, by your spirit. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. So today we begin our study in the book of Romans and we're going to look at these three different passages that I read to us just now and we will next week do an overview of the entire book. That's about as far as I have planned. (laughs) After that, we'll see. But we will not dive in to dig through piece by piece just yet. We will do that. And we will talk about Romans. We will study it verse by verse and word by word. We will go through it to see what it has to say. But in the beginning, what I want to say is that Romans is about the gospel. It's about the gospel of God's righteousness in saving sinners. Can there be a more important topic? And so we're going to spend a long time, I foresee, in this book, talking about these topics because the gospel is that important. I was thinking as we were singing those wonderful songs just now, what happens when a society or a church or a person loses the gospel? What are, what are the results? What, what do you see? And I'm sure the results are numerous, and I don't intend this to be an exhaustive list, but you think, on the one hand, when the gospel is lost, we can begin to read the Bible, if we do, or go to church, if we do, or believe in God, if we do, so that we can be good people. For our own uh, moralism, that's what we see the Bible telling us. If we lose the gospel and we lose the central truths of what Jesus came to accomplish, we will begin to love what he taught, perhaps, portions of it, a particular understanding of portions of it, and we will see him as our example, and that's it. And we will encourage one another to be moral people. And we will seek after our own moralism. And that will become the ultimate goal. When you lose the gospel, that's one direction a society or a church or a person can go is to end up in moralism, dead moralism. We're going to be ethical people. We're going to be good people because we ought to be. On the other hand, for a society or a church or a person that loses the gospel... They may ditch that entirely and run headlong the other direction into a life of uh, debauchery, profligacy, seeking pleasure, seeking their own desires. And so you see that abandonment of the gospel, departure from the gospel can see those two different results. And I wonder if we see those in our society. There are some good people in our country. There are some good people who, who, who go to church. They don't swear. They're faithful to their spouse. Maybe they give to charity. They're patriotic. Spiritually, they're dead. But they're good people. They've lost the gospel. 
They encourage other people to be good people. They point people to the Bible, perhaps, in order to be good people. They point to Jesus as an example of what it means to be a good person. We see that in our society. And we see the opposite. Running at full speed away from God. I was sent an email this week and have been doing uh, a bit of reading and sad reading about recent events. I was born in 1973, and nobody cares about that, except that that's the same year that Roe v. Wade began. And so when I hear the numbers of people in the United States who who have been aborted, I, I always think of them as my peers, my peers and those younger than me. And right now, the number is estimated to be over 60 million. And, of course, you've you've read the news recently about New York passing a law to make it uh, legal to abort a child all the way up to the moment of delivery. And they're not the first state to have that law, by the way. They're the seventh or the eighth. We live in a culture of death. A culture that celebrates death. Our culture is willing to call evil good and good evil. So that when you have a politician or you have uh, someone with a voice stand up and say that abortion is wrong. Then that's called evil. That's called narrow-minded. That's called uh, bigoted or uh, old-fashioned at best. And then you have those who stand and applaud when they pass a law that makes it so that you can kill a baby up to the moment of birth because that's good. They call evil good and good evil. And we live in that society. We see both of those things happening in our society. And the cause, I believe, is that our society has lost the gospel. Our society has fallen off into this ditch or that ditch. And so we come to the book of Romans because it's about the gospel. And it's perhaps the clearest explanation of the gospel that there is. And we do that because we want to know the gospel. We want to understand it. We want to hold on to it. We want to keep a firm grip We want it to be the center of our lives and the center of our thinking. One of the first ways that the gospel is lost is that we begin to do one of two things, or perhaps both simultaneously. The Bible gives a picture of God as high and lifted up. He is exalted. He is holy. He is completely other. And we begin to pull him down toward us. Well, he's not really completely other, is he? Because surely we're somewhat like him. Maybe we have that divine spark within us. Maybe there's some commonality between us and him. Or uh, we begin to lessen him. Has he really always existed? Can he really be all good if these things happen in the world? Can, Can God really be that good? We begin to drag him down, lower him down. He doesn't meet my standards. I think this is the right thing. And, and I see the opposite of that happening in the world. How can a good God who's in control of all things and knows all things let that happen? We pull him down. We pull him down. So while we're simultaneously pulling God down, lowering him, we also build ourselves up. 
And you have, you have humanism, secular humanism, which will do this. Man is basically good. Man gets, actually gets to define what is good. Right? We build ourselves up. We raise ourselves up. We have the spark of the divine within us. We, we are, uh, we're, we're eternal. We live forever. Right? We're, uh, we're, we're the ones who get to define our order. We get to define our world. We build ourselves up gradually. Gradually. Our standard is good. We get to, to say and determine what is good. And actually, you see a lot of good in people, so they can't be all that bad. And so we begin to build up man while simultaneously dragging down God. But when we turn to Scripture, what do we see about those two things? We see an unashamed portrait of God who is all the way holy. He's infinite. And he's perfect. He's sovereign. He's above all. He really does know all things. And he doesn't measure up to truth. He doesn't measure up to a standard of goodness or morality. He is the standard. He's all the way high. That's the picture we get in Scripture. And when we turn to the book of Romans, for example, what's the picture we get of mankind? I read a quote this week or last week talking about Romans is the the most pessimistic book you could ever read about the state of man. It paints such a low picture of man. His own sinfulness. There, there, that passage in the, in the middle of chapter 3 there, all those quotations from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, and it goes on and on and on. It paints a very low picture of us that actually we are deserving of God's wrath. Though we were created in God's image, though, though we have value because of that, yet we have spoiled it. And there's nothing we can do. There was nothing, there's nothing even if we could do it to raise ourselves to God that we even would do to raise ourselves to God because we are in such abject rebellion against Him. Man is all the way up here. Uh, God is all the way up here. Man is all the way down here when you read the Bible. There is a very great chasm. There is almost an infinite gulf, as it were, between the two. And so we read that in Scripture. And so we need to retain, we need to maintain that gulf as it appears in Scripture so that we can maintain and retain the gospel. But what I heard this week and have been reading in the news recently about some of the decisions and some of the statements that have been made, if you haven't read the statement or watched the statement by the governor of Virginia about uh, what this law might mean or what their new, uh, how, it, how the law in Virginia might be implemented, uh, what might end up happening, you need to read it. it they're talking about post-birth abortion. That the doctors and the mother may get to debate and decide whether this child that was born and is now breathing oxygen is going to live or not. That's where we live. So what's the solution? The solution is to remember the gospel. The solution is to remember exactly how high and exalted God is and exactly man's place. And we're going to do that by living in the book of Romans for the next period of time. So you have a handout there that uh, is kind of going to guide you through our conversation. I'll do it very quickly. 
But why study Romans? There are a million ways to answer that question. I've given you just a couple there. The first is the answer from history. The answer from history. This book that's amazing to me, that is powerful to read, has, has been amazing and powerful throughout history. So first you have Augustine of Hippo. He's uh, one of the greatest the theological minds in the history of the church. Uh, he's, he was a brilliant man, an unbeliever, but he, he loved to listen to preaching. He was, a, uh, he was into rhetoric. He loved to listen to, to good um, messages, good speeches, and that included sermons. And so he would go and, and listen to sermons sometimes. And, and one time he was in the backyard and he heard children's voices calling from uh, over the fence saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he was wrestling with something in his mind. And so he uh, ran inside and grabbed his uh, scriptures that he had been reading. And he opened up to Romans chapter 13. And he read this. It's uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, which was Augustine's lifestyle to that point. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He read that and he was saved. He was saved. And he would go on to become St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest theologians and theological minds the church has ever known. And actually, later on in his own ministry, in facing the heresy of Pelagianism within the church, it was his exposition of the book of Romans that defended the truth of the gospel against that heresy. Romans had that position in his life. And of course, we know about Martin Luther. It was the study through the book of Romans in the original Greek that uh, largely led to the rise of the Reformation some 500 years ago. Luther himself was wrestling with the meaning of the righteousness of God and how that could be a good thing because Luther knew his own sin. And he saw the righteousness of God discussed in Scripture and lifted up and applauded and celebrated and God worshipped for being righteous and Luther was scared. And it was when he got to chapter 1 and verse 17 that the light came on. This is what 117 says. I read it earlier. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is what Luther says about that. He says, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Luther had unearthed a truth that had always been there, that justification with God is by faith and faith alone. And he would go on to write a commentary on the book of Romans, and this is what he would say in the preface. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worth not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. 
it can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. He lived in Romans. Thirdly, John Calvin. John Calvin would say of the book of Romans, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage opened to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. And then John Wesley, the father of Methodism. It was through the reading of Luther's preface to his commentary that led to Wesley even being saved. Reading what Luther had written about it led to him being saved. And you know of the powerful, extensive ministry of John Wesley. Samuel Coleridge, who was an English poet and literary critic, would say this about it. He said, Romans is the most profound work in existence. That's a statement. Romans is the most profound work in existence. So that's what history has to say about the book of Romans. And I could go on and on about, about all the different uh, revivals in, in the history of the church that have come about because of a focus on preaching and understanding Romans. But we will move on. Why study Romans? Point number two, the answer from Paul. The answer from Paul. First of all, look at verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul himself would define his life as being set apart for the gospel. We know about Paul. We studied about Paul when we went through the book of Acts. We know that he's written uh, 13 books of the New Testament. His mind is staggering. The things he, he can comprehend and explain, the, the objections he can answer, the, his, his insight into the gospel is unmatched. And he says his whole life is about the gospel. And so if Paul would see his entire life as being about the gospel, I want some of that. And Paul wrote down in this book, look at verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's giving us the theme of this epistle. He says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God, and now he's saying, that's the reason I'm writing this book, is for the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I want to lay it out before you. I want you to understand very clearly that justification before God it's by faith. He's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the very power of God at work saving people. When I think of the power of God, very often, just in my own thoughts, and maybe, maybe you think differently about this, but when I think of the power of God, I think about Him keeping worlds spinning. Or I think about Him healing people. Or I think about uh, his, his work in the history of world events. I think about power as in big displays of it, flexing his muscles. But it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. If you think about what he does in a person when he saves a person, that is the power of God subtly 
and brilliantly and wonderfully at work. It is the power of God. And God most clearly puts that power on display in the salvation of sinners, in the justification of the ungodly, as Paul will go on to say, that God could redeem ungodly people like us. And in the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. So he spells it out for us. He says, he says, here is why I wrote this book. I want you to have this. I want you to have this gospel. I want you to understand it. I want it to be governing in your lives. It should be on your minds and you should understand the ins and outs of it because it affects you. It affects who God is. It affects reality and your view of reality. But how can God justify the ungodly and still be righteous? The gospel tells us that for all who believe Jesus' death is our death so that God's requirements of righteousness are met on our behalf. But how can sinful man have the sort of righteousness that pleases a holy God? The gospel tells us that true faith in Christ is the righteousness that he requires. That is why the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, whose life was about the gospel, writes this book that's about the gospel, and he explains it in chapter 3 most succinctly and most clearly. It's the most concentrated, it's the most clearly argued passage about the gospel, perhaps. First of all, this righteousness of God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. First of all, it's apart from the law. The righteousness that pleases God doesn't come as a result of obeying the law. It doesn't come as a result of putting outside standards upon you that you then must live up to. That's not the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God actually is manifested apart from the law. The law cannot accomplish the righteousness that is required of you. This is because all have sinned. He continues on. All of the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's through faith. For there is no distinction for all have sinned. That's you and me and everyone. We have to have justification from God. We have to have some means of being saved apart from the law because we ourselves are sinners and have not kept the law. And even if you were somehow to begin to keep the law perfectly starting right now, you still have not dealt with your lifetime of disobedience up to this point. You've already broken the law. The law cannot accomplish it because all are sinners. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. The way to be justified with God, the way to be made right with God is by grace. It's a gift. It's through faith in Christ. Justification is a declaration made by God. This person is righteous. I am counting this person as righteous. But how can that be since the person who's declared righteous is really in their practice and in their life and in their own experience really unrighteous? How can God say that? Is God playing fast and loose with the truth? 
Is he changing the rules? Is he bending things? He says that justification is ours because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We can be redeemed in Christ because that penalty has been paid for us by Him. Because He stood in our place. The, the penalty that you deserve because of your sin, the wages of sin is death, He will say. The penalty that, that you deserve was put on Him. So that He steps in and He pays that penalty for His children. So that we can be redeemed The full price of our disobedience and sin has been paid in full by Jesus Himself for those who are in Him. And He goes on to say that Jesus made propitiation for us by His own blood. Propitiation is essentially absorbing wrath. The wrath that you deserve, the the righteous wrath of God leveled at you, aimed at you, targeted at you because of your sin... Jesus steps in the way and he bears that wrath. It's fully expended on him so that for those who are in Christ, there is no more wrath from God for us. It has entirely been spent, entirely been poured out on Jesus so that God has only love toward us. That wrath has been spent. He is the propitiation For us, by His own blood, it was His death that brought it about. And all of this, brothers and sisters, is ours by faith. So there you have the gospel. A God who is entirely holy and lifted up. And His creation, mankind, who is fallen and sinful. And God has bridged that gap. He has sent His Son to fully bear the penalty for the sins of His children. That there would be no more penalty remaining for His children. That by faith in Him, they would have access to God in the righteousness and the forgiveness that are theirs in Christ. So that they can stand before God amazed and at peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And this is by faith. This is ours by faith. This is the righteousness of God that is ours through faith. And so that's a summary of the gospel that he's talking about. That's a summary of the book right in this little paragraph right there. And that is why we need to study Romans. Because we need to understand our plight as a result of our sin who God really is, and how we can be reconciled to Him through Christ. And Romans spells that out in the clearest way. And that's why I don't want to put a deadline on when we're going to finish it. When are you going to be done contemplating the gospel? When are you going to be done thinking about what it means that we have peace with God through Christ? We're not going to be done thinking about that. So I could belabor that point, and I'm tempted to do so, but we will move on to point number three. Why study Romans now? Why study Romans now? Some pastors whom I greatly admire and respect have decided to wait until much later in their ministry to preach Romans. John Piper, for example, waited 18 years 
before he tackled the book of Romans. And that's John Piper. He, he's obviously a skilled preacher, loves the Lord, PhD in New Testament, studied Romans in his, in his doctoral studies, and he waited 18 years. There, there are those who want to wait so that perhaps they will be ready, so that they will be mature, so that they have the, the capacity to, uh, to do it justice. And by the way, I, I relate to that very strongly. I relate to that. I'm, I stand before you uh, shaking a little bit because this is Romans. And in order to, to maintain the loftiness of the gospel for however long we spend in the, Roman, in the book of Romans, is going to require the grace of God. And, and I would be uh, ashamed and worse if I were to take what is glorious and make it pedestrian. And so I would covet your prayers as we're going through Romans, that God would work through the preaching of it and maintain it at the level of, of luster that it, that it, uh, that it really has. That, that it would be held in its lofty position and stay there for a long time, the entire time that we go through it. So pray for me in that regard. Some, some have decided for that very reason that they want to wait to preach Romans. But why was Romans written? We're going to get into this a lot more later, but Paul had never been to the church at Rome. This was his introductory letter to this church. This was not as if he had spent three or four years uh, working through the gospel and explaining it, and then he finally uh, writes later on and says, oh, by the way, here's a doctoral study on the gospel that we never, we didn't get to in the, in the years that I was with you. This, if you get around to it, study this final thing. It's the capstone. It's the ultimate. It's the top. And, and it's, uh, it's advanced. That's not what he did. He's writing to a church he's never met. And he wants to lay out the gospel. And so he writes Romans. And so, in a sense, it's foundational. Not in, not in the idea that it's simple. But it is it's broad and foundational. It goes very, very deep. But it's a foundation. And so, I have uh, decided, we've decided to uh, preach our way through it at this point. It's foundational, so that's why. Second of all, it's because the book is an argument. We've, we've, you may be remembering that about a decade ago or a little more, we started the book of Romans and, uh, and went through it, but it was, it was very disjointed because of, uh, life events that were, that were, uh, that called for attention. And so we weren't able to work through it systematically. We weren't able to begin at the beginning and carry the thought unbroken all the way to the end to get the full impact of what Paul is trying to say here. And that's, uh, that's the way the Lord worked things out. But we want to come back to it and address that argument. It's an argument and it needs to be seen piece by piece by piece and have the whole thing put together. And so we want to focus on that for now because it's an argument. And then thirdly, because we need it. We need it. I'm excited about where we are as a church. I'm excited about some things that I see. I'm excited about uh, some new people coming to Christ and people beginning to share the gospel maybe who haven't before. I'm excited about where we are. And, and when I think of Romans as a foundation, that's how I want us to see this, is that we want to lay a broad and deep and strong and straight foundation and build 
and build and build. And so we need the gospel. We need the book of Romans. We need this study and this time to focus on it. I'm excited about what God is going to do. I don't know what that's going to to be. But we will understand the gospel better if we will stick with it. We will understand who God is better. We will understand what our relationship with him is like and how it can even be possible. We can never focus too much on the gospel. We can never look at it too long, study it too hard. But I do ask for your prayer that as we look at it hard and as we study it for a long time, that it would remain glorious and beautiful and that it would never become dusty, that it would never become academic, that it would never become uh, a debate about this or that or anything, but that we would see in this the purest gospel, as Luther put it, that we would value it, that it would be, it would be like, like pure gold to us. And so pray with me in that regard that that would be the case because we want to celebrate the gospel. We want to understand the gospel. And, and my prayer is that people will come to Christ as a result of this. Perhaps people who, who have uh, come to church regularly and they, they maybe think they're Christians. But that as we go through and work through the gospel, they will understand, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that's what Jesus was doing. I didn't understand what this righteousness of God was really about. I kind of thought it was about me and what I accomplished or something else. So that's my prayer. We want to focus on the gospel. And, and this morning we have the Lord's Supper. And we get to focus on the gospel in this. Because that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's a celebration of the gospel. It's a reminder. It's a physical reminder that you can touch and you can taste and you can hear. And we celebrate it together to remind us this gospel and what it means for us, what Christ has done for us in giving himself up for us. The Lord's Supper is about the gospel. The very elements point to Christ himself. 